Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your sovereign hand on our lives and that You rule all worlds in order to rule over Your people, the church, that You have given our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Creator of all things, to become the head and care person for the church. And we thank You again that we know from the promise of Your Word and have discovered in some measure in our experience that You are too wise to err and that You are too good to be unkind. We thank You for the spiritual riches that You have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, and we pray that by Your Word and through Your Spirit we may find ourselves kneeling at the fountain of His grace this night and drinking deeply from the wonders of His love for us. Persuade us more and more of Your kindness to us, and that in Christ You have provided everything we need for life and godliness, filling our lives with privilege and joy and satisfaction in the midst of privation and sorrow and struggle. And we ask now as we turn to feed upon Your Word that in Jesus Christ we may find through His Word the bread of life, and from Jesus Christ we may drink the waters of life that will well up within us unto eternal life. So, our Father, from the throne of Your glory in heaven, before which Our Lord Jesus stands as a lamb, as though He had been slain, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Flood down upon us, we pray, the rivers of Your Spirit, and satisfy our deepest longings. We pray this together in Jesus Christ, our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we make our way through Paul's letter to the Romans and somewhat slowly through Romans chapter 8, where we have had a number of studies already. We come this evening to verses 26 and 27, but we're going to read in from Romans chapter 8, verse 18. You'll find the passage in the Pew Bible at page 944, if you're using it. And uh, as I've occasionally been saying, if you have a new international version and you brought it with you, then by all means stubbornly use it if you will. But uh, as I've said quite a number of occasions, even though I love the new international version, it's not at its best in Romans chapter 8. And so uh, I commend Romans chapter 8 in another version to you. But let's read the Word of God. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, that is, what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. My minister, when I was a teenager from the age of 17 onwards, when I became a college student through my theological education, and a man who was a supreme counselor to me in so many ways. I Sometimes he's in heaven now, and I sometimes say quietly to myself, where are you when I really need you? His name was William Still. And like many men in the history of the church who have made a particular impact upon their times, he had some very special and unique emphasis. You couldn't have sat under his ministry for any length of time without him banging into your head that there were certain things that were absolutely vital for the Christian life. I've never thought about myself that way, but he was certainly that way, and a number of ministers whom God has wonderfully blessed have, have been given particular burdens in that way. But like many other ministers, and I think I could include myself in this category, there were certain hymns he was always quoting because something about their message or their poetry, the way in which the truth of the gospel was expressed, had gripped their minds. And one of those hymns that Mr. Still often used to quote was Henry Francis Light's hymn, Jesus, I, My Cross Have Taken. I don't ever remember hearing him quote the opening lines. The words he quoted so often, certainly in my hearing, were from a later verse. Think what spirit dwells within you. What a Father's smile is thine. What thy Savior died to win you. Child of heaven, shouldst you repine. Actually, as I quote it, I realize it was an amazingly Trinitarian verse. But the thing that seemed to grip him was not the Trinitarian aspect, but the Holy Spirit aspect. Think, he used to say to us, think what spirit dwells within you. And this, in a sense, 
is what the Apostle Paul has been doing over the midsection of Romans chapter 8. He first mentions the Holy Spirit, doesn't he, at the end of verse 4. God is fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And as he opens up the great theme of the assurance of salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, and as we've seen, moves from the great assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because all the condemnation has already fallen on Christ Jesus, to the triumphant statement that there will be no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ. In this great section we've already noticed, he emphasizes that we can be assured of our salvation not only because of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus, but because of what God is doing for us in our lives through the Holy Spirit what God has done for us in Christ, what God is doing in us through the Holy Spirit. Actually, it's very similar to what the Apostle Peter says when he says, our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, and we on earth are being kept on earth by the power of God. And of course, he implies that power comes through the Holy Spirit as we live the life of faith. And Paul has given us wonderful indications of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the believer to secure the believer for eternal salvation. For one thing, he says, the Spirit has brought us out of the realm of the flesh and into the realm in which He reigns. Sin no longer reigns. Grace reigns. For another thing, in verses 12 and 13, Paul says, the Holy Spirit enables us progressively to deal with the sin that would keep us back from eternal glory. And so, by the Spirit, we put to death the misdeeds of the body, and we will live with Christ eternally. And then, although sometimes our own assurance grows frail and weak, he says, there is not only the witness of the believer, perhaps after all I really am a child of God, but there is the convincing witness of the Spirit assuring us we are the children of God, sometimes in the most difficult of circumstances, because there is born in our hearts the instinct through the Spirit to look to God and to cry out to Him, Abba, Father. And as we saw this wonderfully kind gift that God has given to us in the Holy Spirit, not for our best moments, but for our most broken moments. The language Paul uses is, is a cry, almost a shriek, a loud cry. It's a needy cry. But when we cry, Abba, Father, we give the surest testimony that the Spirit has worked in us an assurance we really are His children that goes deeper 
than all of the afflictions of life. And it's so glorious, he says, that even although we suffer as the children of God, that suffering is part of the purpose of God to shape us for eternal glory. And so, although we don't yet see our final salvation, we wait for it with assurance. We wait patiently, and we long eagerly. And both of those things are indications that we have this great confidence. You ever stop to think about what the Holy Spirit has done within you? That as we were singing, you are looking forward to the great day when Jesus will come and transform all things and transform you and bring you into His eternal presence. This is an amazing thing. Men and women don't naturally think this. No, says Paul, this is God's gracious assurance in us. I don't know if you are anything like me, but sometimes I come to the end of Sunday night, and this has been my experience for many, many years, come to the end of Sunday night and felt myself to be so blessed, even when I am the one who is doing the preaching, that at the end of the night I drive home and I say, Lord, I don't know if I can go back again next Sunday night. I don't, I don't know that, that we can, that we can taste such blessing again. And this is, this is what happens when you study Romans chapter 8, isn't it? And we are not yet at the verses that most people think really are the blessing in Romans chapter 8. As passage and section after section seems to pile on the kindly blessings of God upon His children, as though He were wrapping Bible arms around us, Scripture arms around us, and saying to us, Oh, dear child, be fully assured, even in the midst of these groanings. And we'd already noticed how He spoke about the groaning of creation, waiting for the regeneration of all things, and the groaning of believers as we long for that day when the Spirit's work in us will come to consummation. And now you notice he seems to take a, an even higher step. It's as though Paul is saying, I'm not finished yet. I'm not nearly finished yet. And I haven't started Romans 8, 28 to 39, he's saying. Because just as creation groans and we groan, he says, now there is this great mystery. The Spirit, he says, also groans within the believer with groans that cannot be put into words. And in the mystery of his groaning, there takes place one of the most exquisite ministries of the Spirit. And I think in these two verses, 26 and 27, Paul is really doing two fundamental things. First of all, in verse 26, he is giving us an explanation of the Spirit's ministry at this point. And then in verse 27, he's giving us a rather specific illustration 
of the Spirit's ministry. So, there is a general principle, I think, in verse 26. This is one of the leading characteristics of the ministry of the Spirit who is within you. And then he says in the next verse, let me give you a very special illustration of how this works out. Well, you see what he says. He says, just as the hope of the gospel sustains us in our suffering, the present ministry of the Holy Spirit sustains us in our weakness. Likewise, he says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, he's mentioned this weakness in more than one context already in his letter to the Romans. He has actually been much taken up with it throughout this eighth chapter. The weakness that we experience in the battle for holiness in the Christian life. He understands that it's not easy to be a Christian in this world because of external circumstances, but it's also a battle and a fight to live the Christian life in the face of the sin that indwells us, the temptations we face. But he says the Spirit has come to be our helper. And if you simply glance through the passage, you'll see how that has happened. The Spirit who dwells in us, he says, is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's come to make us like Jesus Christ. And so, one of the things He does is to make us love the things the Father loves and turn away from the things on which the Father frowns. And so, we begin to discover as Christians that all those old tendencies, that those old aspirations, those old loves and lusts, we begin to say through the Spirit's ministry, I don't think I want that anymore. I want to be clean. I want to overcome sin. And as the Spirit works in us, as he says in verse 13, the Spirit enables us to overcome the weakness, the moral and spiritual weakness caused in us by the flesh, so that day by day we more and more become like our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, as we saw just a moment ago, when we feel ourselves to be in situations where there seems to be no solution to the situation, we feel ourselves to be in a cul-de-sac, and there, there seems to be no way out. We can't find the road out, or in a locked room, or we have a, a puzzle we cannot solve. Then the Spirit comes and witnesses with our spirits that are so perplexed, so agonized, and even as perhaps there are moments when inwardly, and in some occasions even outwardly, if we find ourselves in some quiet spot, we are crying out, Oh, Father, oh, Father! And Paul has been saying, Don't you think? Don't you see? Think what Spirit dwells within you. And as you cry out, Abba, Father, and as you look up, you, you begin to realize that behind a frowning providence, as the hymn says, 
there hides a smiling face, and you're able to say, Father, I've no idea what you are doing, but I know you understand me, I know you love me, and I know I am your blood-bought child, that I'm one of your son's younger brothers, and that you gave him for me. And this is exactly what Jesus said the Spirit would do when he came. You remember? in the upper room before the onset of his passion, when the Spirit comes, he says, he will glorify me. That's what all this is about, really. Paul puts it in very different ways in these verses. But at the end of the day, he's really just saying one thing, the Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ in your eyes and in your heart. And when you're taken up like that with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you begin to understand how it is that the Spirit is helping you in your weakness. No wonder we should sing, think what Spirit dwells within you. But there's something very interesting here that probably doesn't so clearly come out in our English translations. It would be difficult, actually, to bring it out in our English translations. Those of you who have studied German know that it certainly looks to people who are not Germans that the way Germans make words is they just take a few words and they string them together and make other words, just long words. And we have our own English words like that. It used to be said when I was a boy at school that the longest word in the English language was anti-disestablishmentarianism. And when we were seven years old, this is, how, this is how we would play tricks on our friends, spell anti-disestablishmentarianism. Uh, now Paul uses a word like that. He uses a verb that carries the idea of taking hold of something and then he sticks two prefixes onto that verb. One of them conveys the idea of doing something along with, and the other conveys the idea of doing something almost over against. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He comes alongside, he, as it were, stands at the other end, and he helps us to carry the Lord. Now, I think it's quite important that we understand Paul is not saying, when the Spirit ministers in the believer, the Spirit says, you move over, pal, and I'll do it. That is not the Spirit's way. That would turn us into robots or something less than robots. When the Spirit works in the life of the believer, He works in order to enable the believer to do what the believer cannot do in his or her own strength. And this is what He says here. I almost mentioned this a few Sundays ago when in our morning studies in Luke's gospel, we came to the passage of Mary and Martha, and you remember uh, uh, Martha is anxious and troubled about many things and has said to the Lord Jesus, 
this is an affront to the Lord Jesus, actually, but she said it, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, that I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's, I'm almost certain that's the only other instance in the New Testament where this particular verb is used. There I am, slaving away, nobody to help me, and there she is sitting at Jesus' feet. She doesn't say, tell her to do it instead of me. She says, Jesus, can't you get her to help me, to come alongside me, to take part of the burden, so that the whole burden can be carried? Let me try and illustrate this, something to my disadvantage. Some of you know that do-it-yourself is a dangerous thing for me to do, and um, I've always tried to do it in secret when nobody in my family has been present. And there was one occasion I got the really stupid idea into my head. I would make a table. Now, that's somewhat of an exaggeration. I thought, there's no way under the sun I can make a table, so I'll buy the bits and I'll make the table. And so I bought a table-making kit. I remember it very, very vividly. It was in, uh, I think it was in a June, and it was in Philadelphia, and it was a warm evening. And if you can imagine the scene, which I don't advise, I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts. <laughs> so you know I was in total privacy. And I opened the box, and I, I got the instruction book out. And I'm one of those men who looks at the instruction books, decides the author is not a native English speaker, puts the instruction book away, gets the pieces out, and foolishly and stubbornly thinks he can do it. That was six o'clock in the evening, exactly six o'clock, because I wanted to know how long this would take. At exactly the stroke of midnight, <laughs> six hours later, when all around the house outside was silent and uh, I was the only person in the house, I turned over to, I think it was either page 24 or page 36 of the instructions, and in large letters at the top of the page, the very last page, it read, now, very carefully, with the help of a friend. I thought, with the help of a friend, why couldn't you put this on page one? All they'd put on page one was read the instructions before you build the table. Here I was, needing the help of a friend. Otherwise, all my six hours of labor, there was only one page to go. And I couldn't do it myself. That's not altogether true. I contrived all kinds of mechanisms with other things in the house in order to turn this table over and to move it along, but boy, I could have done well if I'd been able to call on somebody and say this. You stand over there on the other side. You take that end. I'll take this end, and together we will carry this table. Now, that's what Paul is saying. That, my friends, is what is so 
divine and gracious about the ministry of the Spirit. He sees you in your weakness, but He has no intention of leaving you in your weakness. He means to come alongside you and, as it were, say to you, now lift, lift, and I will lift. And in the power and help of the Holy Spirit in a thousand different ways, our helplessness and weakness is overcome. The thing that's so thrilling about this, and I hope it is thrilling to you if you're one of those Christians who so often feels oppressed and bashed by people who tell you, you know, when you get the Holy Spirit, there are fantastic things you begin to do. Forget about doing the fantastic things. You have, you have, you have neither aspiration nor vision to do fantastic things. All you want to do is to find help in your weakness, to bear your burden. My dear friends, the Holy Spirit is not given to the great ones who pride themselves in all the amazing things the Spirit is doing through them. The Spirit of God is most at home in those who feel themselves to be feeble and frail and weak and are conscious of those weaknesses, and He delights to enable us to carry these burdens that we bear. And you see, they could be anything, couldn't they? I think that's the marvelous thing about this statement. Paul doesn't specify exactly what the weakness is or what causes the weakness or where it comes from. Any weakness. And of course, since the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does not snuff out a dimly burning wick or break a bruised reed. The Spirit is Jesus-like in the lives of His children, and He helps us in our weakness. Now, that's the principle. I think myself that in the next verse, Paul is giving us a specific illustration, and here's his illustration. He says, let's uh, look at the middle of verse 26. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, and here's the illustration. The Spirit gives particular help when that weakness is in the area of prayer. Now, intercession, which is what Paul seems to have in view here, intercession is actually an expression of our weakness. There is no strength in intercession, because intercession is saying, Lord, I can't do it. We can't do it. They can't do it. If it's going to be done, you need to do it. That's what intercession is. No matter where we hear it, it's, Lord, you do it. Lord, you break in. You, Lord, you carry the burden. Lord, you give the healing. 
So intercession is weakness. But this is multiplied weakness because this is the weakness of intercession profoundly weakened when we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Whether that's out of ignorance or whether it's out of perplexity. Lord, I don't know what their situation is. How can I pray for them? Or whether it's out of perplexity. There are situations where you say, Lord, I don't even know what to pray here. It's far too complicated, big for me to understand. It's so perplexing. Nobody knows what the right thing to pray in this situation would be. So this isn't just weakness. And now we bow the knee and say, Lord, you do it. We're saying, Lord, you are strong. We are weak. You need to do it. But here's a situation when we bow the knee and we say, Lord, you are strong and we are weak and we have no idea even what to ask you what to do. So this is not just the weak believer. This is the weak believer weakened in his weakness. And here is the grace of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, says the Apostle Paul, something amazing begins to transpire. Not only, this certainly is its own encouragement, not only does the believer have an advocate on high who is interceding for us, the Lord Jesus Christ interceding for His weakened children, but He says, we have an advocate, an intercessor within. And so, he says, in that terrible weakness in prayer, when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, we've no idea what's appropriate here. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, some of us go to prayer meetings. I've been, I don't know how many prayer meetings I've been to where there have been groaners. You know, oh, mm-hmm. People do that in prayer. That's great. It's not what Paul's speaking about here. Paul is speaking here about something far more profound than the noises of agreement that I may make during the course of a time of prayer. He's speaking. Do you remember how he says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Spirit searches the deep things of God? And now he's saying this, the heavenly Father sees into the deep things of my heart. And as the heavenly Father sees into the deep things of my heart and the perplexity of my, my, my longings down there that I have no way to understand how to pray or what to pray, the Spirit searches out in my heart what is the mind of the Father? The Father searches out in my heart what it is that is the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit makes intercession for the saints, says Paul, in perfect accord with the will of God. I can hardly take this in, my friends, the thought that when I have no idea how appropriately to pray, that may be the very moment in which the perfection of intercession is made in my heart by the Holy Spirit and the Father who knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit 
who perfectly knows the mind of the Father. As it were, the Father's hand comes down from heaven to hold me, and the Spirit's ministry comes from within to hold His hand. And instead of this is the absolutely astonishing thing, instead of as we would do perhaps to our children once they'd done it a thousand times and still didn't understand, say, why can't you understand it? Some of you who are teachers know that kind of frustration with students. Can you not get it into your thick head? but not the Father who sees me in my terrible weakness. I I say to Him, Lord, this is just too much for me, and I don't know how to come to You. I bow my knees before You. I don't even know what to say to You, Father. And the Spirit makes intercession for the saints with groans that are inexpressible. And so there is intercession of a heavenly perfection, because He will bring us into His purposes for His kingdom. When I was a little boy, I used to be taken in the summer to the northern coast of Scotland to see my mother's relatives. She came from the most northerly county in the mainland of Scotland, and we used to get toured round that side of the family. And you know, certainly in those days, when you were eight years old, you were seen, but you were definitely not heard. And so, visiting the relatives was, uh, well, in some cases, it was like going to the movies, actually, with some of my relatives. But… It was pretty tedious and boring sitting, listening to grown-up conversation about all kinds of things and drinking tea. But my mother had a cousin who had been uh, grievously ill when he was just recently married, 21 or 22. He was absolutely paralyzed. The only thing he could do, he could move his head a bit, and he could, he could if they put a cup of tea in his hand, he could he could move the tea, and he could, he could sip the tea, and used to sit in a wheelchair there. And from time to time, he would make noises. And after I got over the, the fright, the fear of the of the unknown, the strange, I began to notice every time these groans came from him. The woman he had married when he was, I think, 21 or 22 would appear by some, it seemed, mystical gift of interpretation and give him exactly what he wanted. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. That's how we sometimes are. We are paralyzed. We don't know how to pray. And in this world, sometimes to this world, we seem insignificant and unimportant and to be passed by and to be despised. 
but the Spirit helps us in our weakness, because even when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, my dear friends, if the Father does that for you, there is no possibility He will ever let the weakest of His children go. Think what Spirit dwells within thee, what a Father's smile is thine, what thy Savior died to win thee, child of heaven. Shouldst thou repine? There's only one answer to that question, isn't there? Never. Never will I lose heart. So long as the Father loves me, the Savior has died for me, and the Spirit helps me in my weakness. Well, let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how marvelous must that fellowship be that You have with Your Son and with Your Holy Spirit. And we are awestruck that in Your love for us, You should not only point us to Your Son and give us new birth through Your Holy Spirit, but that You should minister to us in this way in our terrible weakness by that same Spirit. Show Your desire that we should be caught up into Your purposes, that we should feel ourselves and know ourselves to be Your children. And as Your children have every confidence that since You have brought us to the birth through Your Holy Spirit, You will keep us for that final adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies through the indwelling of that same Spirit who makes intercession for the saints in accordance with the will of God. With all our hearts, we praise You. Pray that we may know this blessed ministry of Your Spirit in our own lives and among us as Your people. And this we pray for Jesus, our Savior's sake. Amen.